Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. Tra-la. It's May, or at least it will be when this drops. It is still April where I am. Um, This year has been a whirlwind so far. I hope it's going well for you. Um, I hope that you are still safe and have been able to get your COVID vaccine. Um, I will have had my second dose of Pfizer by the time this drops and will be almost almost two weeks past that. So able to hug my friends who are also vaccinated and wearing masks, but still hugs, hugs good. Um, Anyway, (laughs) my new job is continuing to go well. Um, It is keeping me busy. I'm still finding a few minutes in the morning to do a little writing. Um, I'm finding my new routine. I still think that I will be able to get hopefully one episode out each week, possibly two if there's a short myth one. Um, So we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, at least one a week. Um, Today, we have another play from Plautus, uh, Poenilus, which translates to the little Punic. Uh, Punic is another word for Carthaginian. Um, I know I haven't covered Roman history in this podcast yet, uh, but you may recall from some other source that Rome and Carthage, well, they weren't exactly friends. Uh, You know the story about Hannibal and his elephants going over the Alps? Yeah, Hannibal was from Carthage, and the reason he took those elephants over the Alps was to attack Rome. So I know I keep using this phrase, but this one is interesting, and I'm going to come back to that later. The play is set in Caledon, which is a city in Greece, most famous for the mythological boar, the Caledonian boar, that has nothing to do with this play, but you might have heard the word Caledonian before in um, a mythological context. Our love-struck young man is Agorostocles. Uh, the object of his affection is Adelphasium. She and her sister Antirostalis uh, and their maid, Gidenis, belong to Lycus, the local pimp. Agorostocles' clever slave is Milphio. Calibiscus is another of Agorostocles' servants. Uh, we also have a braggart soldier, Antimonides. And finally, we have Hanno, who, well, I'm going to let him be a bit of a surprise if you haven't already read. Because like I said, this one is interesting. All three um, of the upstage buildings are used. We have the House of Lycus, the House of Agorostocles, and the Temple of Venus. Uh, As frequently um, with with Plautus, I'm working from the Henry Thomas Riley translation. And you know that he sometimes does weird things with names. So hopefully the names I've given uh, just now will match the names that I wind up using in the summary. Um, Hopefully we'll see. Uh, So anyway, we'll take a short break uh, before going over the plot. The play opens with a rambling prologue that eventually gets to the point about halfway through. The play is called The Carthaginian, and here's what you need to know. There were these two cousins in Carthage. One of them is alive, the other is dead. Now, that latter one, the dead one, had a son. And when the son was seven, he was kidnapped. That was six years before the father died. Now, since his son was lost, he made his cousin his heir, and then he died. 
Meanwhile, the boy was carried off to Caledon and sold to a rich old misogynist who wanted to be a dad. That man adopted the boy and made him his heir, and then he died too. The boy is now all grown up and lives in, well, this house. But uh, back to Carthage and the other cousin, the one who is still alive. He had two daughters. When the girls were four and five, they were kidnapped along with their nurse and sold to Lycus, who now lives in this house. They're all grown up now, too. Now, the young man in this house is in love with the older of the young women in this house. This all works much better on stage when you can see the gestures. They don't know that their fathers are cousins. At any rate, you know, uh, the love is all quite chaste and proper. There's also a captain who is in love with the younger sister and is seeking to buy her. Meanwhile, the cousin who is still alive has been searching all over the Mediterranean for his missing daughters. And yesterday, he arrived in Caledon. Oh, and there's one more thing. The old man who adopted the kidnapped son was once a guest of the living cousin's father. Because that's clear as mud. And with that, the prologue announces that he's told you everything you need to know and that he needs to go change costumes so they can play someone else. I mean, just in case you recognize him when he comes on stage again, please remember that he's supposed to be someone else. He exits. Agorastocles and Milphio enter from Agorastocles' house. Agorastocles explains how he is in love with Adelphasium, who lives next door. He asks Milphio for help in purchasing her freedom. Milphio comes up with an overly complicated plot. Shocking, I know. Calibiscus, Agorastocles' bailiff, will pretend to be a stranger and go to buy Adelphasium from Lycus. Lycus, being a very greedy individual, will take the gold and the man who brought it. Then Agorastocles can accuse Lycus of stealing his slave and his gold, and there's no way that the praetor won't take Agorastocles' side in this manner and force Lycus to pay restitution on top of repaying the money that he got from Calibiscus. Milphio says they should go inside and explain the plan to Calibiscus, and but Agorastocles really wants to go to the Temple of Venus to see the Aphrodisia, this festival in honor of Venus where most of the worshippers happen to be prostitutes. They don't get a chance to do either, though, because Adelphasium and Antistilus enter, and Agorastocles and Milphio hide so that they can eavesdrop. This is a Plautine play, isn't it? The sisters talk, and the men provide color commentary. The conversation does little to further the plot, although we do get a sense of the characters of the sisters, such as they are, which isn't saying much. Uh, before they are able to exit the temple, Agorastocles steps forward and asks where they are going, as if he doesn't already know. Adelphasium explains about the festival. Then she and Agorastocles have a spat because he's promised to buy her freedom and he hasn't done it yet. After much more discussion than is probably necessary, the sisters finally go about their business and exit into the temple. Agorastocles asks Milphio how he will ever come up with the money to buy Adelphasium's freedom. Ah, Latin names. My tongue doesn't always work around them. <laughs> Milphia suggests a few things. Not that Agorastocles is really paying attention to any of it. His head is in the clouds. Milphio finally gives up on the conversation and goes back to Agorastocles' house. Agorastocles sighs and exits, too. Lycus enters. He, too, talks about the Festival of Venus. He then comments that the captain was supposed to come for breakfast, but he's late. Except, of course, that is when Anthemonides, the captain, enters. Anthemonides speaks of his prowess on the battlefield to explain his tardiness, and the two men exit back into Lycus's house. 
Agorastocles enters along with some attendants. He has enlisted these men to help him with Milfio's scheme. They know the one. The attendants reply that, sure, they know the one, but all of these other people, the audience, do they know? Agorastocles suggests that maybe the attendants can explain it, which they do. As a refresher, Agorastocles has given Calibiscus the sum required to buy Edelphasium. Calibiscus will pretend to be a foreigner and go to Lycus. Lycus will then take the money and kidnap the man. Then Agorastocles will be able to accuse Lycus of stealing his money and his servant, and then the assembled attendants will serve as witnesses in the subsequent trial. Milfio and Calibiscus enter. Calibiscus is dressed to the nines, or, you know, at least he's borrowed some of, I don't know, Agorastocles' clothes so that he doesn't look like a slave. The plot is discussed further, and everyone takes up their places as Lycus enters. The attendants tell Lycus that there's someone there to see him, and they point out Calibiscus. They tell Lycus that the stranger has money and is looking for some entertainment. Lycus is happy to help him find some. He approaches Calibiscus. The two men talk before exiting into Lycus's house. Meanwhile, the attendants have called for Agorastocles to enter so that he can see that the plan is unfolding as intended. Agorastocles asks the attendants what he should do next, and after another lengthy discussion, he decides to knock on Lycus's door, which he does. Lycus enters. Agorastocles accuses Lycus as planned. Lycus is confused at first and worried by the end of the scene. While Agorastocles exits into Lycus's house to fetch Calibiscus, Lycus exits to the forum to get some help from his friends. Agorastocles re-enters along with Calibiscus. He commends his slave on a job well done and tells him that he can go put on his own clothes now. Agorastocles thanks the attendants for their help as well. The attendants exit to whichever direction is appropriate, and Agorastocles and Calibiscus exit into Agorastocles' house. Milfio enters and tells the audience that he's waiting to see if the plot has come to pass. He sees Synchorostus, Lycus's cook, coming from the temple, and hides. Synchorostus talks to himself about money and his work and the ongoing festival happening inside the temple. Milfio eavesdrops and provides running commentary for a bit before deciding to enlist Synchorostus's help in the plot. Synchorostus is all too happy to oblige. He tells Milfio how the sisters came into the possession of Lycus in the first place, how he bought them off a Sicilian pirate when they were young, along with their nurse. The pirate said they were freeborn and from Carthage. Milfio is particularly surprised by the latter statement because his own master is also from Carthage and was also kidnapped as a child. Zincarastus has Milfio swear to keep the secret before he exits into Lycus's house. Milfio dances a little jig because this makes his plan even easier. Hanno enters. If you've already read, then you may have noticed that this section is, well, unintelligible to modern ears, and that's because it's in Punic. And if you thought Latin was a dead language, well, that's nothing compared to how dead of a language Punic is. Hanno is from Carthage, and Punic is the language that was spoken in Carthage, and in this play we have whole scenes containing this no longer spoken language. According to a footnote, Hanno says something to the effect that he's in search of his daughters and his cousin's son, and he's come to Caledon because his old friend Antidemus lives here, or, you know, at least lived here. Agorastocles and Milfio enter. Despite his promise to Synchorostus, 
Milphio has naturally told Agorosticles that the sisters next door are also from Carthage. Hanno overhears this. Milphio sees the stranger and notes that he's dressed like a Carthaginian. Milphio, Milphio greets him. Hanno responds in Punic. Agorosticles has apparently forgotten his first language completely because he has Milphio translate. And we get a lengthy scene in which Milphio acts as translator between Hanno and Agorosticles as Hanno asks for help finding his daughters. Eventually, Milphio's knowledge of Punic can't keep up with what Hanno is saying. So Hanno says, oh, fine, he'll speak Latin for them instead, um, which means he, he knew how to speak Latin this entire time. And of course, you can imagine how Milphio feels about this. <laughs> And, um, and of course, by Latin, I mean whatever language your translation is in. Um, but it, he still says Latin in the, the Riley translation. Anyway, even though he's speaking English, because we speak English, or I speak English. I don't know what all languages you speak. Um, I'm presuming at least one of them is English if you're listening to my podcast. <laughs> anyway, Agorosticles mentions that he was born in Carthage. Hanno asks what he remembers of his family, and Agorosticles says that he remembers his parents' names. Over the course of a lengthy conversation, they discover that Agorosticles is the long-lost son of Hanno's cousin. And they're pretty sure that the sisters next door are Hanno's long-lost daughters. Milfio knocks on Lycus's door and asks to see Gedanius, or uh, Gedemini, if you're Henry Thomas Riley. Um, now, I'm not sure if this is an issue of noun declension, because as I've mentioned before, my Latin is not very good. I do know this much, though. Um, Latin nouns have different endings depending on whether they're, you know, an object or a subject or so on. And these are these are called declensions, like we conjugate a verb, but we decline a noun. Um, so you will see proper nouns, such as names, have different endings depending on the context. Um, but my Latin's not good, so I don't know if Gedemini is a different declension of Gedenis. Um, it might be. Whatever the nominative declension of her name really is, though, she enters, along with a boy who is later revealed to be her son. Gedenis is immediately immediately recognizes Hanno and throws her arms around him, and Hanno recognizes her too and asks where his daughters are. She explains, what a surprise, about the festival at the Temple of Venus. Um, there's some more conversation in Punic. Hanno and Agorosticles direct Milphio to take Gedenis and her son into Agorosticles' house, and that group exits. Hanno and Agorosticles then wait for the sisters to return from the temple. Adolfasium and Antristalis enter. After more stage business than is really necessary, father and daughters are reunited. Anthemonides enters from Lycus's house. He sees the sisters hugging a strange man and is appalled by this behavior. The sisters try to explain that the stranger is their father, and Anthemonides is relieved and says that he's happy for them, especially because this will be bad for Lycus, who then enters. Lycus is confronted by the other men on stage. He agrees to compensate Agorosticles for Hanno and his theft. Um, Agorosticles asks if he can marry Anthemonides now and is told yes. Anthemon not Anthemonides. Why did I say that? <laughs> Ag Agorosticles asks if he can marry Adelphasium. Wow, I miswrote that in my script. Um, and he's told yes. Anthemonides asks for his money back because it turns out that Antristylus should never have been for sale in the first place. Lycus is ruined. Everyone else rejoices, and the play ends. I kind of like this play.
play. <laughs> it's, well, it's your typical plow team plot, but it's weird. Not because of the plot, because of history. Um, it's a Roman play based on a Greek original. So the whole Carthaginian aspect makes sense if we look at the original but Rome hated Carthage. Rome destroyed Carthage. Literally, you hear about salting the earth. That's what Rome did to Carthage. And yet, Plautus maintains this Carthaginian aspect of the Greek original. So there were actors in Rome speaking the language of Rome's mortal enemy. And the characters speaking Punic, they're sympathetic. They aren't the villains of the piece. They're, they're the victims. And Plautus didn't change that from the source material. And I, I just, I have to wonder how this was received when it premiered. And I don't know how many times it was performed, however many times it was performed, because Rome hated Carthage. And yet... And yet we have this play. I love that. Um, I did make a digression about language. And I, I want to come back to that because I talked about dead languages. And Latin and Punic both fall into this category. Um, and what that simply means is that they aren't spoken anymore. Language is a living thing. It changes. We adopt new words and phrases. Um, and think about words that we were scarcely using a year ago, coronavirus. Um, do, do, has anyone else started using the word quarantine to talk about the people that they're isolating with, your quarantine? That, who would, no one used that word more than a year ago. It, that's, that's a new thing, right? This is, this is a living language. We adopt new words. We borrow words from other languages. Um, we, it, it evolves. Emoji have become a part of language, right? Um, there, there are the language that we use today. It's it's alive and it changes. Um, and yes, you go to school and you are taught grammar and proper prop the proper way to use a language. But um, but that's that's being taught the written language, right? Not necessarily how we use it when we speak and communicate. Um, with other people who speak the same same language that we do. Or um, when we develop pidgin languages that are combinations of two different languages so that some two people who don't necessarily share a language start coming up with words and phrases that they can use to communicate with each other. That's living language. Latin and Punic, yeah, they don't do that anymore because all that we have left of them are written sources. Ignore ecclesial Latin, that's its own thing. <laughs> it's like, it's different language than classical Latin. Classical Latin is what, what we're interested in. Um, that's what we have in in these written sources that, that we're covering um, in this podcast. Um, and so that's, that's what's interesting about this play. It preserves examples of two different dead languages, both Latin and Punic, not just the usual one, not just Latin, which is what we usually see, right? It's, it's like it's like the Rosetta Stone, right, of, of plays that it preserves, preserves dead languages um, and gives us some idea. You know, and we have the scene where Milfio is translating and so Hanno's saying stuff in Punic and Milfio translates. And so we can learn at least little bits and pieces of Punic from this play.
Um, the last thing that I want to talk about is the sisters. Um, and I want to, I want to touch on, oh, that first scene. Um, it is so familiar to probably every woman, <laughs> at least every woman that I know. Um, there is one point that Antress Dylas actually says to be nice to Agorastocles so that he'll stop annoying them. Um, I'm sure the scene can be funny, but there is something that's just a little cringy about it because how often um, do women smile and be nice so that a man will leave her alone because that's the only way she knows how to be safe? Um, yeah. And that that is something that we see on stage in this scene, you know, in this play from more than 2,000 years ago. Um, and, and it makes you wonder that if this is how Adelphasium is behaving in Act 1, how does she really feel about Agorastocles in Act 5 when her father says, oh, of course, Agorastocles, you can marry my daughter who you've been pining for. Does Adelphasium really, is this is this love requited because um, we know that she was being nice to him in Act 1 so that she and her sister could go about their business? Um, yeah. So what do you think about this fascinating little piece of history? Either either t- looking at the uh, the women that we've got, looking at this fact that Carthage and Rome and languages and all of this um, pop over to the blog and share your thoughts it's at triumvirclio.school.blog the URL and maybe a link are in the show notes depending on your platform I am still on Patreon um, should you wish to support me that way no pressure that URL is in the show notes too in the next episode we will cover book five of De Rerum Natura talk to you then You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.